0: The winter will probably be coming, and during those times, hopefully, we can stay warm by our fellowship, warm through our worship, and look forward to this upcoming year. Um, What we're going to be doing for the rest of this semester is uh, we want to spend some time studying uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is the three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to spend a good amount of time in that into the summer. Uh, But before we do, uh, we want to get ready for that series uh, by planting ourselves in the Psalms. We started with Psalm 30 last week. And the reason for doing that is, number one, uh, the Psalms uh, really shape us uh, to be able to receive God's Word uh, in a very sober, in a very honest way. And it's going to help us to understand this Sermon on the Mount a lot better. And number two... The Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches uh, has a lot of these wisdom sayings, a lot of these statements that require uh, for you to just really dwell on. Um, One pastor once said, if a lot of the narratives of Scripture is like meat and milk, uh, some of these wisdom sayings are like Jolly Ranchers, where you have to keep turning it over and over. And we want to get ourselves ready for that, so we're going to spend some time in the psalms uh, for the month of January. So we'll start with Psalm 1 uh, this morning as we read. Uh, there's a counseling term called post-holiday depression, if you've heard of it. And there's a study that shows that about one out of four, 25% of Americans suffer from either low-grade to full-blown depression right after Christmas into the month of January. And this happens uh, because December is so packed uh, with all of these social events, uh, time spent with family and friends, traveling from one place to another, and there's this sense of fulfillment, of relationship, and being part of community. Now, what happens after Christmas is that there's a sudden drastic change from all of these get-togethers and events, from all these days off of work, to all of a sudden going back to work, uh, kids going back to school, uh, people returning back from vacation. Not to mention, January is the darkest and coldest month of the year. And it's a month where people tend to hibernate. We don't see much sun. And it's accentuated further, as I mentioned, if we get snowed in. Uh, Some psychologists, they even say that another contributing factor uh, to this depression uh, is this sense of guilt that everyone feels after overindulging and all this food and drink uh, that they began to enjoy all the way back in Thanksgiving. And finally, there's also the, even the anxiety of starting uh, the new year, having these resolution, uh, resolutions that we have to come up with and keep with. So all of that put together, a uh, combination of all these things, makes a lot of us miserable uh, during this time of the year. Uh, Washington Post, they did a survey asking 1,000 Americans what their favorite month of the year was. Do you know what month that was? It was May, May, right before the summer season hits. What? Guess what came dead last? January and February. It's the least favorite month of the year. The more I think about it, I think it's right. I believe it. Um, you know, in a few days, Joanne and I, we're going to be celebrating our three-year uh, marriage anniversary—it's nothing compared to some of you. I've uh, been married for many, ta- many years. Uh, you can't even get a college degree in three years, uh, but for us, it's been a very full three years. But when we got married, uh, we had no problems getting a venue because uh, we got married uh, in January, January 9th and January 23rd. We had a reception here, and many of you know that when you wedding plan, you have to think about how many of your guests are going to be coming and showing up. And they say about maybe about 75% of the people whom you invite will end up uh, at your wedding. But for us, uh, having our wedding and reception in the month of January, it was a time where people were, were dying to get out of the house. And they were all afflicted with these post-holiday blues. We had our reception on a very snowy winter night in January, on a Sunday night even, And nobody declined coming to our wedding. I think a maximum of four people couldn't come. Our wedding in Korea, um, there were so many people that we had to make overflow room that all of our family members couldn't even eat uh, some of the food. There were people from renewal that came all the way to Korea, and I was surprised to see them right in front of our Korean wedding. And all to say, I believe in this post-holiday depression because... As much as I like to think that all of my friends and family came to celebrate our marriage, I wonder if they just needed to get out of the house and just have something to look forward to. And what this shows is, I think like with everything else, celebrations, holidays, they all come and go, seasons. And our happiness comes and goes with them, don't they? And our happiness tends to be like this seesaw situation where our happiness is on one end and the lack of affliction lack of difficulty and tribulation is on the other so if there's a lot of issues a lot of difficulties in our lives then our happiness goes down if there aren't many difficulties in our lives our happiness goes up the reason why i'm talking about this happiness is that's the first word in our passage it says blessed but the word is not just saying blessedness, because it can actually be translated as happiness, and many Bible translations do translate it like that. Happy are those, or happy is the man. And as we read further this state of happiness, we see it doesn't just come and go. It's not contingent on the absence of tribulation. It's not dependent on upon getting certain things or having some uh, event to look forward to, but it's a constant happiness we see. Some people call it an unwavering joy. So this morning, we're going to take up the task of answering the question that mankind has been asking for all these years. How do you be happy? (laughs) A big question. It's a very daunting task, and can you imagine trying to answer that without Scripture? how do you be happy? So trying to come out with something on our own, we're far, far uh, giving a correct answer. But luckily, and in God's providence, we have this word that we can look to this morning. So with that, let's pray and let's seek him as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word. It guides us, it directs us, It convinces us of our sins and persuades us of our need for you. It provides light in the darkness, hope in desperate situations. It gives us joy because these words reveal a God who is committed to us every year. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Could we actually turn on the lights? I only have a couple of slides, so I don't want you guys to be in the darkness this whole morning. So three points for today, very simple. Number one is uh, what happiness is, we're talking about happiness. Number two, how not to get it, and number three, how to get it. Very simple, what happiness is, how not to get it, and how to get it. So let's start with that. Let's define what happiness is. Well, I think to begin, I think everyone defines happiness uh, as a feeling that comes when you, when you get something that you want, right? I'm fairly confident that everyone in the world naturally thinks along this line, this all cultures, everyone, young and old. I remember uh, giving a little present to this uh, little kid, and the kid was very excited, and I just asked, are you happy? And she goes, yes, why are you happy? because I got this present. It's a very simple illustration, but I think it's very true for all of us. This feeling of happiness for this kid came when she got something she wanted. And so naturally, she and everyone else, we will associate happiness with getting something that you want. And after you get it, happiness comes. Now, if I ask that little child or even any one of you, out of the blue, are you happy? What's going to happen? In your mind, you're going to be searching for reasons to be happy, aren't you? You'll say to me, why? Why should I be happy? Did you get me something? Right? I think the way that we think about happiness, it's, it's dependent on things. It's a reaction to something. It's an emotive response to an expectation that has been fulfilled. And the reason why I'm taking the pain uh, to explain this is because that's not how Psalm 1 describes happiness. It doesn't say blessed or happy is the man who gets what he wants. It doesn't say happy is the man who receives A, B, or C. In other words, blessedness is not reactionary to things things but it is a state of being a state of life it's not fickle it's not contingent upon something or someone or some circumstance we saw that this word blessed it also means happiness and even in the original hebrew the form of this word it's a plural form it's not singular Meaning, it's not this single one time experience of happiness that comes and goes whenever something good happens to you. It's in the plural, so a literal translation would be blessednesses or or happinesses. It's a lot, it's continual, it's very much happiness. It's not a one time event, nor is it temporary. And that makes sense because we see in verse 3, if you look with me, this blessedness is described as a constant, continual stream of water. It yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Therefore, happiness is not a response to getting certain things, but it's something that is happening all the time inside of us, a state of being something that's constant and abundant. One commentator writes, the state of blessedness is not a reward. Rather, it's the result of a particular type of life. And we can show the difference of these two definitions in a very simple day-to-day situation. So imagine a guy named Bob. Wakes up on Monday morning getting ready to go to work, and as he's getting ready to go to work, what's on his mind is, I hope there's no traffic this morning. Right there, what he's doing, he's setting himself up for happiness or frustration. Gets in the car, drives the morning commute, and if there is no traffic on 76, happiness. If there is traffic on I-76, frustration and anger, he's angry. Let's continue that scenario. Bob gets to work, and he's hoping that annoying coworker isn't here today, that one that's right next to his cubicle. Right? And then what's he doing now? Setting himself up to either be happy if something happens or angry and frustrated if it does not and happens all throughout his day all the way until Bob gets home hoping for his kids to be well behaved tonight wanting peace and quiet to watch his favorite show whatever it might be and again he's setting himself up the conditions for happiness and if those things happen he becomes happy if they do not he becomes angry do you see how we operate in a very reactionary type of model for our happiness. And we set ourselves up like the rest of this world every day. In our pursuit of happiness, it's kind of like we have this radio. And we're setting our frequencies to certain things. And you know how radios work. Only when you match that frequency do you get sound. So when we live out the rest of our days, we have certain frequencies, certain things that we are looking for. And if that frequency matches, happiness. If it doesn't match, anger, frustration, despair. And whatever that happiness frequency might be for you, whatever you think will bring your happiness. And everything that comes your way in your life, you weigh that against this frequency. And if it happens, praise God. Praise God for A, B, and C. But if it doesn't happen, God, what are you doing? No happiness. It's not how happiness is described here. Psalm 1, it looks more like this. Bob wakes up in the morning and he does not need to look forward to something to be happy. He might get stuck in traffic. He might be late to work. That annoying coworker might give him a harder time this morning because he's suffering from post-holiday depression. He may come home to hear that his kid just got suspended from school. And yet he does not wither, but he prospers. And responds the way scripture tells us to respond in Psalm 71. Even though these things are happening, yet I will praise you, God. That's happiness. So that's how what happiness is. Second point how not to be happy, how not to be happy. The way that um, Hebrew poetry works, they often use these literary devices to get across an idea. So this idea we've been studying so far is this idea of happiness, this blessedness, and how one remains in that state. And so the literary device here that we see is what we call parallelism parallelism. And what it's doing is it's defining something, but the way that it's defining it is it's first talking about what it's not. It's not this, but it is this in a parallel-like fashion. So let me try to break it down for us. If someone asked me, Joanna had a friend uh, from Korea, and she wanted to have cheesesteaks. And she asked me, what's the best cheesesteak in Philly? And I answer in such a way, it's not Pat's. It's not Gino's, and it's certainly not D'Alessandro's. It is, I'm not going to say what I, I don't want to create any (laughs) conflict. But what did I do just there? My answer came with a force, doesn't it? Because it's not Pat's, it's not Gino's, certainly not D'Alessandro's, but it is, it gives this sense of force, it accentuates it, doesn't it? That's what Hebrew poetry is doing here. We see that in verse 1, the way that it's talking about this blessed man. First, it talks about what it is not in three statements, three negative assertions, what the happy man does not do. And this is our second point. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. Do you see that rhythm? Not, not, not. And I think this is staggering when we think about our happiness. Because the way that you and I tend to think about happiness is we must do something to be happy. We must get something to have happiness. But what Psalm 1 is telling us first, there are things you need to stop doing first. To not walk, stand, or sit in the way of sinners and wickedness. Before it tells you what you need to do. I think that's harder. I think that's a lot harder. It's easier to finish reading the Bible from cover to cover than to stop watching those shows that are making you buy into this world. It's a lot easier to tack on a few minutes of prayer for persecuted Christians around the world right before you go to bed than for you to stop spending all that money on yourself. It's a lot easier to tack on another church activity than to stop committing yourself and your family to this after this and vacation and activity after that, especially because everyone else seems to be doing so. It's harder to stop sometimes than to do more of something. And I think that's what this psalm is challenging us with first. Before we tack on what we need to do spiritually, maybe the question is, what do you need to cast off this year? Are there things that God would rather you stop doing versus you doing more spiritual things first? And what are those? In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, stop. Just stop. Stop coming at me with your offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. All of your worship services, my soul hates They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And he says, first, just wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes and stop evil. And he says that because he hates double-mindedness. And he especially hates when we tack on his name. When deep down inside we are no different from the people around us who idolizes family success who idolizes career advancement the the pleasures of having these little things in our lives our reputation of being a certain kind of person and when we come to God when we still hold on to these things God's saying Just stop wash yourselves be clean there was a retreat that I was a part of a while back. And you know, there's some retreats, as soon as you enter, it's just heavy. Spiritually, it is just heavy. And you can tell when you talk to the people during the praise time, no one is responding to God. The pastor is preaching God's word and just blank faces everywhere. There was visual, uh, vis- uh, uh, visible conflict amongst the congregation there was nothing we could do except for pray. And we pray. And the next night, I think a miracle happened. And what happened was, after the praise, there was a time of prayer. And during that time of prayer, one of the students, he got up, and he walked up to the altar in the front of the sanctuary. And what we had done was, we placed a box in front of the sanctuary saying, if there's anything you want to give to God, perhaps a letter, a prayer, a note, Feel free to put it in this box. This is, who, this is where God's going to receive it. And the student, as he come up, he walks up and he stands before the box and he takes out from his pocket a pack of cigarettes. He just drops it in the box. Now all the pastors and counselors, we starting to freak out and how did he sneak that in there? I thought we covered everything. <laughs> but before we even got to talk to him, right after that, another student came up came and brought these CDs. It was in the early 2000s. Broke these CDs, placed it in the box. One of the girls came up. She dropped her makeup kit because she was struggling with her vanity. We found that one student. He was struggling with addiction to cigarettes. Found out another person. He was so idolizing music, that's all he would be doing. And more and more, these students came up after that happened. You should have heard the praise. You should have heard God's word being resound in people's heart that night. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He avoids the things in this world that is sucking the spiritual life out of him. He doesn't walk. Nor does he stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't get complacent with the sins around him, thinking, that's just how it is. He doesn't get comfortable with the sins that he sees in his life. The blessed man, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't join in what everyone else is doing. And there will be times, and there are times, when he refuses to participate in certain things because he knows it's going to compete against his love and devotion to God. Now, here's the danger. If you look at verse one and you look at the three knots, look at the progression that we see. He Doesn't walk, doesn't stand, he doesn't sit. And what's going on is this wicked man, the opposite of this blessed man, he's walking and he's around wicked people and he's hearing how they operate. He's hearing the ways of this world is intrigued and then he stands, he's considering them. He knows that clicking on those sites is bad, but this time he's standing. He's going to give it a try. See how that makes him feel. He knows he shouldn't be spending all that money on himself, but let's give it a try. He's starting to become intrigued. And then what happens? He sits. He joins them. And he scoffs with them. And he says things like, why can't I miss Sunday once in a while? I had a long night last night. What's so bad about me watching these shows? Everyone else is watching it. I'm doing my things with God. And he joins them. Do you see the progression? You start to hear. You become intrigued. And you're joining the rest of this world. And that's how dangerous it is. A theologian from the 1400s, he once said, to sin and to fall is human, but to continue in error and sin is the work of the devil. And so if you've been wondering why you have not been happy, even after doing more spiritual things on top of one another, and you're at a point of giving up saying, God, what more do I have to do? What else do you want from me? Perhaps you need to take verse one to heart and ask, what do you need to stop doing first? so that you can be happy in the Lord because the blessed man does not walk, stand, or sit with the patterns of this world. Finally, how to be happy. We saw how not to be happy, and now we see how to be happy. So we see, as you saw, these three series of negatives. What the blessed man does not do Now we start to see what the blessed man indeed does in verse 2, and we see that beginning with that word, but. There's a contrast here. But this blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and everything that he does, he prospers. Two things I want you to note here in verse 2 first, do you see that he delights in the law? That's the first verb. He delights in the law, and the second word is meditate, the second verb. He meditates also on the law of the Lord. He delights and meditates. We're going to talk about these two things. These two things, we see they're associated with the law Now, I want us to clarify that this law, it just doesn't mean the Ten Commandments. It's not just all the legal aspects of Scripture. What it means here by law, it's all of God's instruction, all of God's commands. In some of your Bibles, there might be a footnote next to that word law, and it says instruction. Because it means everything. Now, the first thing that the blessed man does is he delights in the law of God. This is very different from how you and I go about reading God's Word. Because somewhere along the way, we adopted this kind of thinking of, I need to finish reading the Bible from cover to cover this year. I need to get through this Bible reading plan, or even slightly better, I need to read Scripture this morning so that I can make it this day, I can get through this day. That's the kind of thinking that we've adopted. That's not what verse two is calling us to do. It's not saying, finish reading your Bible this year. It's not saying, make sure you read a few verses every morning so that you can get through the day. That's not what it's calling us to do. It's calling us to delight in the word. That's a whole different ballgame. It's a command to actually love God. God's word and to want to hear his voice and to appreciate these divine words. John Piper once asked this very stark question. He said, do you delight in God's word? Or is it more like medicine that you take simply to stay alive? What's Psalm 2, Psalm 1 asking us to do? to see God's Word as medicine. I need this so that I can make it, so I can make it throughout the day. It's not asking us to do that. It's asking us to delight in it. When I was a music major in college, uh, one of the requirements for all the composition majors was to have uh, two proficient instruments. And so there are these practice rooms in the basement of the music building, no ventilation. It was just blocked off, felt like prison cells, and we had to, every month, fill a quota of how many hours we practiced, and we had to submit that to our advisor. And not only do we have to practice a certain number of hours, we need to participate in a certain number of hours in, in rehearsal, in orchestra, with other players. Now for me, that quota, it was horrible. I barely fulfilled the quota every month, and after each time, I would talk to my friends, my other music major friends, and I would say to them, man, don't you, don't you hate these quotas we have to fill every year or every month? And I wanted them to sympathize with me, and you know what they say? They're like, I love it. I never have to worry about it because I always exceed it. I don't even have to keep track. And it was right there when I understood. I am not to be a musician. <laughs> they are to be musicians and I switched my major to biology. When they asked me from time to time, Luke, do you wanna get together and play some music and practice? And my answer would be why? (laughs) I filled my quota. For them, practicing wasn't just to get through their classes, to get through their major, but it was their delight. And that's very different from what I had been doing. Do you delight in God's word or is it more like medicine just to make you stay alive? That's the difference. Next, not only does he delight in God's word, but he meditates on it day and night. Now, when we think about this word meditate, uh, we tend to think that it's a very internal cognitive exercise right that simply just happens in our minds and that's a very western modern notion of meditation because what meditation was back in the ancient times it wasn't this internal exercise but it was a very verbal spiritual exercise and this very same word if you trace its usage in the old testament it's used to describe the the cooing of a dove the low growling of a lion. It means more to murmur or to mutter to yourself continually throughout the day. That's what meditation means. So it's not just reading a portion of scripture in the morning, closing your Bible, and then living the rest of your day, hoping that somehow what you read in the morning is going to affect you indirectly. That's not what meditation is. But it's a constant muttering of God's truth to yourself to even memorize certain portions of Scripture, to think over what it says like we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, to linger on a certain phrase like a gobstopper, to look at the world through the lens of a particular verse instead of just checking off a box on your reading plan. And one writer describes it like this, Bible reading is like yard work. And most of our reading of the Bible is like raking the leaves. Because raking the leaves is relatively easy work. And it can make the yard look better in a very short time. And it's easy enough that even three-year-olds can even help, right? Thanks to uh, buying these kids' rakes at the hardware store. There's raking, but there's also a kind of yard work where you have to dig, Where raking is reasonably painless, digging, even just a small amount, can be back-breaking. But nevertheless, it is rewarding. He calls this digging unrushed reflection. And he says, raking is easy, but all you get are leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. And he says, thinking about God Reasoning about God, knowing God, they are the necessary means to delight in God, enjoying God, and treasuring God. That's why we reflect so that our affections and our souls can be awakened. My violinist friends, at some point in their lives, they started to appreciate the, the tone of each stroke the timbre of each instrument the intricacies of this phrase in contrast with another motif how this particular piece fits with the rest of the symphony how the bass contributes to the melody it's when they started to appreciate that they started to delight for me i just needed to pass do you see the difference Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who delights in the word and who meditates on it, who digs. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that's what the psalmist had in mind to dig. Because in verse 3, we see that the one who murmurs God's word throughout the day is like a tree planted by streams of water. Do you see what's going on? He's planted there. He's not naturally growing there, but it takes intention he was strategically placed in that stream of water. It requires digging, removing the rocks, softening the soil, placing that sapling in the hole. It takes work. We tend to think Psalm 1 like, like trees in America, like in the Mississippi, maybe. You know, when there are all these tributaries and all these trees grow naturally. I think many of you, when we think of Psalm 1, perhaps we think of this picture, this kind of image, the first one, right? We tend to think it's kind of like this great, lush tree that just naturally happens to grow on the riverside. But that's not what it was. In Israel, the main two sources of water were from the rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And how they had to cultivate their was they had to tap in to one source of water. And in order to do that, they needed to dig. They needed to dig these canals and these <clears throat> irrigation systems so that the source of water would eventually come to their fields. It looked a lot more like this. It took me a lot of time to draw that, <laughs> to get this point across. Do you see how intentional they were? That's what Psalm 1 is looking like. This next picture, this is what Israel looks like, how the water reaches these trees, these man-made Irrigation canals, which takes work and digging. It takes murmuring and muttering throughout the day. So likewise, our reading of Scripture takes preparation so that we can remain in the state of blessedness so that when the dry season comes, we will continue to prosper. It's being so seeped in God's truth all throughout the day from having meditating and ruminating on God's word, that the lens through which you see the world is through God's eyes, through heaven's eyes. And what starts to happen is God's word starts to shape you and how you think and how you see the world. So that when Bob, he runs into that traffic jam and he sees a long line of cars, his immediate reaction is not, man, I'm going to be late for work. His reaction is, I pray that no one got in an accident. And he starts praying just in case. It happens when Bob gets to work and that annoying coworker is there and he's about had it. He's about to explode and he holds on to Galatians chapter six and says, do not give up in doing good for you will reap a fruit. When his kids are testing his patience, he's holding on to Colossians three that says you're bought with a price. You're God's chosen ones, his beloved children. As the Lord forgives you, forgive them. He holds on to that for dear life. Finds out that he's getting laid off, he claims Matthew 6, that says your father in heaven knows all of your needs. Do not be anxious. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be given unto you. He finds out about phase four cancer and he desperately holds on to Romans 8.38 for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of Christ. How are you going to respond to all that is coming your way in 2019? A pastor once writes, imagine yourself this year, you're in the middle of a major decision, and you need guidance. And you're struggling, perhaps, with a very difficult temptation, and you really want to have victory over this sin. And the Holy Spirit, He enters your mind. And He enters your mental arsenal, and He's looking around for available weapons. And all He finds there is John 3.16. All He finds there is Matthew 28, the Great Commission, And he says, as great as these two swords are, those two swords aren't fit for every specific battle. How do we go about filling our personal spiritual arsenal with a supply of swords for the Holy Spirit to use? Think of yourself as a toothpaste. And this year, as soon as you get some pressure in your life, that traffic jam, that coworker, your kids, something about life that's hard, and it starts squeezing you. Let me ask, what comes out of you? Does what come out of you, your thoughts, your words, your reaction, does it look like everyone else in this world? Or does God's word come out? There are older brothers and sisters that I look up to, if you poke them, God's word oozes out of them. <laughs> Does what come out of you sound like what you see on Netflix? Does what come out of you sound like what you hear in music? Does God's word come out each and every situation we come across? And we wonder why we're being demolished day in and day out by Satan. And we wonder why happiness is so far out of reach. Is it not because God's word is not being applied to every situation of your life? It's not Psalm 1. We think we can rake a few verses Sunday morning, perhaps Monday and Tuesday, and we rake those leaves, and we think that's going to be able to get us through the day. It's not. None of us knows what 2019 is going to bring for all of our individual lives, for our church, but we know there will be dry seasons. There will be tribulations. There will be suffering, frustrations, And there will be a time when you're desperately seeking answers, asking God, what is going on? Why is this happening? And when those times come, I pray that our church will have a spiritual arsenal of God's truth to block against the arrows of the devil and the powers of this world that we ooze out Scripture. Do you know what Jesus' last words were When he died on that cross, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's word for word, Psalm 22, verse 1. Like a toothpaste, when you squeeze him, scripture comes out. In the most excruciating circumstances of his life, he's not searching in his own mind to make sense of things. God's living word comes out. It gives him peace. It assures him, as painful as this is, from God's word, this is how salvation will be offered to you and me. God, why have you forsaken me? But I know this is your will for me. God knows he knows what jesus has gone through and he knows that in 3 days he will rise again when you and i we plant ourselves in god's truth delighting in it meditating on it that state of happiness this joy this blessedness cannot be taken away if you look at verse 6 the result of what happens is god knows the path he knows the way of the righteous And what that is saying is, he knows what you're going through. And he knows what's on the other side of your tribulation. He knows what's going to happen. And you have a God who knows you so much. When Jesus was dying on that cross, God knew very well what awaited him. In three days, he was to rise again. And God knew very well that Jesus had to die the death that we deserve so that we could be forgiven for our wickedness for constantly choosing the ways of this world over his word God knew and Jesus knew that that cross paved the way for salvation and likewise when you encounter the most excruciating pains of life I pray that you too you will have God's living word oozing out of you and while you may not know what's going on you trust from his word God knows and he knows you And it's in this Bible that we read of a God who knows all the pain you're going through. There is a God who knows your suffering, the same God who knows you so much that if it was ultimately up to you, 10 times out of 10, you would choose the path of wickedness. And it's the same God who knows you well enough that you need a Savior to deter you from walking down that path. And that same God who knows you sends his Son our sins there are 750,000 words in this book they are the very words of god they will sustain you they will not simply be medicine but it will be your joy if you allow it i want to end with this one final story that i heard and it was this one christian who attended this acting class and when he attended this acting class this famous actor came and they're asking all these questions and they're asking could you act this out and could you act that out and one of the people in the stands they asked him could you read psalm 23 and act it out in the most convincing way you could and the actor did it was impressive it was powerful and the guy who asked this visitor he said that was a great rendering of this psalm and the actor said why do you ask and he says well i'm a bible believing christian and i believe this is god's word And the actor said could you read it and he stood up and he read psalm 23 and he stuttered he was shaking he fumbled over words but after the end of his reading the actor said he's the most convincing Because he knows this God. Do you know who this God is in this Bible? Because he knows you. He knows what 2019 is going to come. Do you want to get to know this God this year? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us for loving this world. You placed us in this world not to simply take after the patterns of this world but to proclaim the light of Christ to those around us. But more times than not, we've begun to conform. We've become to walk with them, to stand with them, to sit and scoff with them. And God, forgive us for complaining to you why our lives are so miserable. Lord, help us to find joy in your word, to delight in it, to meditate on it, not because we have to, but because we want to. And God, we admit, unless your Holy Spirit comes and awaken these new affections in our hearts, we are lost. So we ask of you this year, give us a new heart that wants to get to know you